Let me read to you the first three verses of Isaiah 16. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. Whenever you uh, start talking about um, vision, I've learned over the years, um, you find that uh, people can be divided as easily as they can be united. I spent a significant chunk of my um, sabbatical as I was explaining last week, and that's, uh, if you weren't here, that is on the, on the web. Um, I spent a, a significant part of my uh, um, sabbatical trying to crystallise in my mind and my heart um, where the Lord is calling us, who the Lord is calling us to be, what our calling is as a local church. Um, I'm absolutely certain that despite the fact that uh, a vision sometimes um, uh, can cause a little bit of um, shock and consternation, we need a vision as God's people. We need uh, a vision as well, which is challenging, exalted, inspiring. You can't read the Bible long without realising that. Abraham, for instance, was given an absolutely awe-inspiring vision of what his life was about. His descendants, he was told, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Through him, all nations would be blessed. And that great vision continues throughout the Old Testament so that eventually the prophets say, the uh, earth will be covered with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And then Jesus didn't, uh, 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 didn't sort of... Um, uh, domesticate and, and minimise that vision at all. In fact, when he rose from the dead, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, he said, go to all nations, teaching people to obey everything that I have, uh, uh, have taught you. And surely, he said, I am with you every day, all the days, until the very end of the age. What a vision to set before the first disciples. They serve under the, the, the one who has all authority over heaven and earth and they've got to go to all the earth teaching everything that Jesus commanded for all of the rest of time. Or in the, uh, uh, the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a, 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 an extraordinary vision of this world and finally of the end of this world. When, says John, God himself banishes death, mourning, crying and pain and God himself sheds his light over his new creation in such a way that it eclipses even the sun. The Bible is full from beginning to end of big, glorious, extraordinary vision of what God is doing in his world. So we should have a big vision for what God has called us to. I do know, though, that a big vision 
can inspire despondency as much as it can inspire excitement. Last, last week we began to articulate um, um, uh, what, what I want to call us together to embrace as our vision. We began to articulate by saying we believe God has brought us together to delight in him. And we use the purposefully, emotionally intense word, that word delight, to indicate um, something of the, 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 the heart response that God expects us to have. It is our, our greatest, deepest calling to know God and not only to know God intellectually but to know God in a way that captivates our hearts above all, of, all other things. We are called to delight in him. But I know some people will say, well that's an impossibly high calling. I might as well give up on that. Well, let me, let me, let me first of all say to, to, to any who are daunted rather than inspired by, um, um, uh, uh, by this thought that we're not trying to say we're there yet. Actually, only in eternity will we be fully there. But this, says the Bible, is the direction in which we are heading if we are Christians, if we are a true church. We may be stumbling, we may be even sometimes taking some steps backwards. We may even at at some other moments feel ourselves totally paralysed, but this is the goal that God has called us heavenward for. This is the treasure that God intends to give us. This is God's great purpose for us to delight in him to know Christ's love as Paul puts it elsewhere that surpasses knowledge and so be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God so don't be demoralised if you don't feel that we're we're, um, there yet or that so far we've tasted so little of it Actually be excited that as uh, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6 he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. One day your heart will be so captivated with God and Christ so delighting in him that nothing, everything else will fade into insignificance by comparison. And in the meantime, we can start taking steps in that direction. God has brought us together to delight in him. And let me say clearly something that has already been obvious, but let me, let, let me, um, let me lay it on the line. Peter does that. You open some windows. Closing some windows. Ah, oh, that's a shame. I shall. Let me say something very um, clearly to you. This is first and foremost God's work. We very carefully articulated it. We believe God 
has brought us together to delight in him. Because it is God's work, not us. Our vision statement is, is to articulate first and foremost what God is doing in us. What God has said that he's doing in us and through us. And that's very obvious in Isaiah um, chapter 60. Just a few verses back in Isaiah 59 verse 16 we find something um, very important. Isaiah throughout his prophecy has called Israel to follow him, to fulfil their calling and through um, them, the, the, them to, to, to bless the nations. And again and again Isaiah has said but Israel you failed. So in 59 verse 16 he says he saw there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. Isaiah 60 is a chapter about what God will do. Because God's people can't do it. That's what we must remember when we begin to read Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, his glory appears over you, nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn, from beginning to end, this is the work of God. We um, have articulated it with these words. We believe God has brought us together to delight in him, displaying the glory of Jesus in the power of the Spirit through word, service and community to the peoples of East Oxford and the world. And this morning we're just going to uh, unpack a little bit of how Isaiah in chapter 60 uh, visualises that, explains that to us. And frankly we could have gone to a lot of other passages in, uh, in Scripture we read from Philippians 2 which just says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and ends by saying you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. But here we're going to confine ourselves to Isaiah 60 and ask ourselves a question which goes beyond what we looked at last week. Last week we saw that Isaiah, when he describes the dawn of God over our, uh, our lives, Isaiah is pointing to the fact that we were made to delight in God. But now we're going to look at a second thing that Isaiah brings to our attention, much more forcefully actually. It is what God is going to do through us. Not just what God does in us, but what God does through us. What he does, says Isaiah, is he achieves a new exodus. Let me explain. Isaiah lived, of course, 
in Old Testament Israel with the Old Testament story of Israel very much in his mind, particularly the story of the Exodus. It was the great story of Israel's liberation from their slavery in Egypt, their deliverance through the Red Sea, their protection and guidance from God in the desert and finally their entry into the Promised Land where they could be at rest and worship God. And Isaiah uses those images to explain what he's seen about the future. This new exodus that he has seen, he says, will be a worldwide exodus. Not just Israel coming out of Egypt and going into the Promised Land, but now every tribe and nation converging on a renewed Promised Land. And actually that renewed Promised Land is going to be a miraculous Promised Land. It'll be a place where lions lie down with lambs, where snakes don't bite little children, where actually even dead people rise to life. Though he uses the language of the first exodus, he's clearly talking about something far, far greater than that. The New Testament tells us that the fulfilment of Isaiah's vision of this new exodus takes place in God's church. As people from every tribe and nation leave their bondage to sin and death, are given new life by the Spirit and live now in their new home amongst God's people and await the final fulfilment of that when God makes everything new and brings all his people from every age together into his new creation. We need that in our mind then as we look at what uh, Isaiah says. He is going to do through us. First of all, he says, through you, my people, I am going to um, produce a worldwide pilgrimage. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes, look about you, all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, your daughters are carried on the arm, he says. Remember Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He was thinking about this verse, these verses. Nations coming to the light of God's people. God shines his light on us and then people see his light through us. He says, the nations will come bringing magnificent wealth, verse 6. Herds of camels will cover your... This is not a plague of camels, by the way. This is great caravans of camels will cover your land. 
from Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And all of these people coming with all their wealth in, uh, uh, to, to, to gather together will come to worship God. Verse um, uh, 7. Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaioth will serve you and be accepted as offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. They will be, he says, propelled by invisible forces like um, homing pigeons, like clouds scudding in the sky, verse 8. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nest? There seems to be a mysterious force which draws these people in. There seems to be an invisible thing making them move. And they will come from the farthest reaches of the earth. Verse 9. Surely the islands look to me and the lead of the ships of Tarshish of the, of the high seas bringing your sons from afar with silver and gold. They're coming home, says Isaiah like um, doves to their nests, like ships to their harbour, like prodigal sons from a far country, like wayward daughters coming back on their father's arm. They are, as, as uh, verse 4 puts it, assembling. They are gathering as God's people. They are becoming a church. And Isaiah says to experience that, is to be filled with joy. Do you see verse 5? Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. Isaiah seems so entranced by that vision that um, though he's speaking long before it ever, ever happened, he says to them, lift up your eyes, verse 4, look about you. Well, if Isaiah was excited when it was hundreds of years before it would happen. How much more excited should we be who are beginning to see it? Lift up your eyes. Look about you as uh, at China where millions are flocking to Christ. Lift up your eyes and look about you. At Africa where then, now there are so many um, Anglicans alone that the most significant Anglican bishops in the world are no longer in, in Canterbury and York. They are in Kampala and Nairobi. Lift up your eyes and look about you at Iran, where despite the uh, Ayatollahs, there are probably more Iranian believers than ever before in history. And you know, in the Muslim world as a whole, some people say that in the last ten years, there have been more converts to Christianity from Islam than in the thousand years before. Lift up your eyes and look. Says Isaiah. Now we, we here, locally, are a tiny drop in that vast ocean of what God is doing in his world. But make no mistake about it, the pilgrims are coming home. They are assembling and our hearts too can throb and swell with joy because people are coming to the brightness of our dawn. That's what God is doing. 
He's bringing a wandering people home. And what a magnificent message that is for our modern Western society where people are always wandering. Where people so often feel completely detached from family and roots only held together by relationships that they just don't know how long they'll last. And Isaiah says, they can come home. They can come home to God. They can come home to the beginnings of an everlasting rest in God's church. God is creating then a worldwide pilgrimage home through his people. They come to the light that they see. He is as well, verses 10 to 14, creating a new city. Foreigners, he says, verse 10, will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. And at the heart of this new Jerusalem, this new city, they're building a new temple, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir and the cypress together, to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. Isaiah is remembering, actually, a wonderful detail in the history of Israel. When Solomon built the first temple, he used wood and uh, many craftsmen from Lebanon who weren't believers at all. So in God's providence, the nations were involved in building Israel's temple. And now, says Isaiah, in this new temple that I'm building, the nations are going to do it all. They'll build the temple, and build the city. And one of the most prominent things about this city that God is building is its open gates, verse 11. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. The gates stand open to let the people Flock in, and flock in they do, morning, noon and night. But there is something important about the openness of these gates. The reason cities close their gates at night is because they're under threat. But this city feels no threat. Because God is its security, verse 12. The nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. In Revelation 21, when when, uh, um, John describes the new Jerusalem, the final new creation that God um, is preparing for us, he describes there the city with open gates all of the time. Again, because it feels no threat. At that point, evil has been completely eradicated and there, are, there, there is nothing to threaten this new Jerusalem. But even today, the Bible assures us, God's church is absolutely secure. 
Today we can be a people that doesn't need to close the gates because there is no threat that can overpower us. If we are a true worshipping community of God, God will defend us and we need not fear. And if you are a true believer this morning, God will defend you and you need not fear. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is creating a new city which is absolutely secure. And God is creating a new community too. He's going, he says, to repopulate the land. Verse 15, Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one travelling through you, I will make you the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. He's going to build this new community, he says, with precious materials, creating in it peace and righteousness. Verse 17, Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. And I will make peace your governor, righteousness your ruler. In 1 Corinthians 3, in the New Testament, Paul speaks of building the church with gold and silver. In context, it seems a little bit peculiar. We expect him to say, with solid masonry and a good hard roof or something. But when you read Isaiah 60, you see what he's thinking of. He's thinking of a community of people who are built with the most precious ingredients peace and righteousness. Verse 18, No longer will violence be heard in your land or ruin or destruction within your borders and you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And this new community will enjoy the everlasting sunshine of God's presence. Verse 19, The sun will no longer be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of sorrow will end. We've already seen the final fulfilment of that is described at the end of time in God's new creation, when the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. But in the meantime, Christ has begun shining his light on his new community. He has begun to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
He has begun to let that light be reflected to a world that so much needs it. That's what God is doing. In Isaiah's picture language, that's what God's doing here. Why is he doing it? He answers that question um, very clearly. We could ourselves trawl the Bible and give lots of really good answers as to why God should gather us together, make us into that new community, that new city, so that through us, others can come and glorify God. We could have said he, he uses us in that way because he loves us. We could have said he uses us in that way because he's promised to. We could say he uses us in that way because he's determined to defeat evil and use us to do that. But actually, there's another answer which is very prominent in this uh, chapter. He does it to display his splendour. In verse 7, he says, I will adorn my glorious, my splendid temple. In verse 9, he says um, that God has endowed you with splendour. In verse 13, we find that God's work is to adorn the place of my sanctuary. In verse 19, we find your God will be your glory, or actually better, your God will be your splendour. And then in verse 21, it becomes crystal clear why God is creating this city, this temple, this community, so uh, splendid. Verse 21. Then all the peoples will be righteous, they will possess the land forever. They are the shoots I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendour. God does all this for us to display his glory, to display his splendour in this world. That's why we have formulated the reason why we are here in the particular words that we have that you can see at the bottom there. We believe God has brought us together to delight in him displaying the glory of Jesus. In other words, as we delight in God, so God makes us into a people who display the glory of Jesus. He gathers his pilgrims, he builds a city, he builds a new community for the display of his splendour. Oh, you say to me, oh, that's, all, that's all very fine. I can see that in Isaiah. But it's an impossible dream. Well, don't speak so fast. Amongst his New Testament people, God loves to display his glory through weakness. 
amazingly. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for instance, the Apostle Paul describes his uh, uh, many trials. He says he's hard-pressed. He says he's perplexed. He says he's persecuted. He says he's struck down. And yet, um, uh, somehow he says God always seems to glorify himself in his life. He summarises it in this way. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. And perhaps you feel battered and bruised and confused about your faith. Perhaps for you, uh, Isaiah's vision of our, our final destiny has shone a little bit of a shaft of light into your present darkness this morning. This is what God is determined to do for you. The glory of Jesus is being revealed in you and through you. Perhaps you feel actually completely numb. Perhaps all of this Isaiah stuff has just passed you by. But actually God's church carries you. God's people care for you. God's people pray for you. Until the light finally dawns again. The glory of Jesus is displayed in your life. One thing I I know is that God is doing that amongst us. I know that because I hear people in the community saying, you've got something good going there. I hear people saying, for instance, that uh, Sunflowers Mothers and Toddlers group is, is uniquely special. I hear people speaking about church members saying there's something special about them. I hear people speaking about uh, uh, Morden Road with respect and enthusiasm and I know as well as the rest of us we are very far from perfect here. Sometimes we are as knocked about and as battered as the Apostle Paul ever was. But I see through us the glory of Jesus being displayed to East Oxford. What God says he'll do, he does. He is doing That is why we are here. I haven't had time to talk about why actually word, service and community are so important. I think they are vital and they fit together and we'll explore that more in the autumn. I haven't had time, let alone, to think about evangelistic strategies or what it means to glorify God at work or what, what, what about building relationships within the life of the church? What are, what are we doing about world mission? What are we doing about 
social action? So many vital questions and they are very important and we must give attention to them. But all of them fly under that great banner, that most extraordinary picture that God gives us. God is the sun who shines on us so that we delight in him. We are the moon who reflects the glory of God in the face of Christ. And amazingly through us, through that pale, glimmering moonlight, the peoples come to the light. Let's pray. Perhaps you need to do personal business with God. Asking him to shine the light of his presence once more on your heart. Now's your your moment just to talk to him about that.